Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. safe to say that in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, science popularization is having a bit of a moment. In epidemiology, the boundary between newsworthy and verified science is elusive, the issue at hand lately being the aerosolization of the virus. As the United States attempts to withdraw from the WHO, who, oof, had to do it, really even knows whether an international consensus will have a broad influence on containment tactics on the ground. When it comes to matters that touch us all, whether sensational or mundane, the science-media nexus is impossible to ignore. I'm here today to discuss matters beyond this sublunary sphere, namely the planet Mars. How did astronomers, in an era of proliferating print media, convey the findings that new telescopes revealed? In his new book, News from Mars, Mass Media, and the Forging of a New Astronomy, 1860-1910. Historian of Science Joshua Now, Curator of Modern Sciences at Cambridge's Whipple Museum of the History of Science, sets out to answer this question, among others. Now, a former BBC New Generation thinker, provides a rich account of transatlantic science communication as it framed fascination with telescopic images of Mars. News from Mars deserves a broad audience, particularly among the astronomically inclined, aware of how the narratives of savvy popularizers like Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson have shaped public understanding of what astronomy is and does. Joshua Nall is a museum curator, and fittingly, his first foray into this project came from an object. Um, well, it actually, it started with an object. Um, I was working in the Whipple Museum and um, we were offered a globe of the planet Mars by an antique dealer. And the director of the museum asked me if I would write up a grant proposal to see if we could get the necessary funding to buy this globe. Um, the globe had been painted in 1913 by uh, a Danish artist and astronomy enthusiast. And it was based on the maps of Percival Lowell, who, if you know anything about the history of Mars, then Lowell is just about the most famous name because he's the kind of driving force at the turn of the 20th century um, behind the idea that Mars was a living planet, that it had intelligent Martians living on it, and that they were constructing an intricate and kind of massive system of canals to irrigate the planet. Uh, And so this globe is a truly extraordinary object to look at. And it's on the front cover of the book, fittingly enough. And it shows this canal network. Um, And I knew nothing of this story when this this offer came up to to buy this globe. So I went and did a bit of research. And at that point, I was kind of fishing around for, for possible research projects. And while a lot of stuff had been written about Lowell and the canals. One of the obvious kind of lacunas in the story was there wasn't a great deal of literature that looked at the relationship between Mars and astronomers and the public sphere, um, kind of the popular reception of these ideas. With the notable exception of science fiction, there's been a lot of work um, from a number of different scholars on um, Mars and life on Mars in science fiction. But actually, if you start to look more 
people like Lowell and treat them uh, as astronomers, not as kind of popular characters. Um, it felt to me like there was a lot more that could be said and done in that area. So that was kind of the what got the ball rolling on, on the research project. The globe adorning the cover of the book, which Nall just described, cuts a striking figure. The red planet laden with massive bodies of water, seas almost, dividing the planet into continental formations with names resembling those on Earth. I asked Nall to give our listeners a sense of how Lowell's model departed from existing understandings and visual representations of Mars. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the first uh, image in the book, in the introduction, is actually a photograph of five different globes of Mars made in during the time period that this book covers. So from the 1860s to the 1910s. And what's striking looking at all five of these globes next to each other is that they don't at all look like each other. Um, so this is a period when really mapping of Mars is only just beginning because Mars at this point to observe through even a really huge telescope, um, it's a difficult, a very difficult object to observe. Um, it only really comes uh, into opposition with Earth that is a close enough approach to kind of look at through a telescope once every two years, and really only really good oppositions only happen once every 15 to 16 years. So um, what happens is that between the 1860s and the 1910s, there's a series of remappings of the planet. And if anyone wants to, to know a lot more about this, then I, very fortunately for me, at the time that I started my project, um, a book had recently been published, a really wonderful book called Geographies of Mars by K. Maria D. Lane. Um, and it's an absolute tour de force. It's, I recommend it to, to anyone listening to this, this podcast channel. Um, and so she gives a really amazing and deep history of attempts to map Mars and the cultural relations between Mars and observations and mapping uh, in this period. And one of the points that she makes is that Mars is very much um, being understood at this point in a way that reflects larger cultural uh, concerns with the nature, not just of Mars, but of Earth as well. And so Mars is kind of mapped in a way that reflects uh, the Earth and reflects terrestrial concerns. So it starts out looking kind of like it has big continents and big seas. Um, but then from the late 1870s, the question of whether actually the planet is actually almost completely lacking in water begins to arise. And there begins to be more and more kind of uh, arguments made that actually what is present on the planet is very narrow channels of water only. Um, what get termed in 1877 by the Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli, canali. And these canals become kind of the central focus of debates about life on Mars over the next 30, 40 years. Um, and what Lane shows is that really quite quickly, they go from being these kind of um, diffuse and organic looking uh, bodies of water between continents to being a intricate network of geometrically straight lines. And they reach their kind of apotheosis in the maps of Percival Lowell. And at this point, which is what you see on the cover of the book, the network is, um, is perfectly geometrical. All of the lines meet up at nodal points and they're all perfectly straight. And that's because in Lowell's argument, um, they are constructed by intelligent Martians um, who have built this system of canals to irrigate uh, their crops, to, to bring water from the poles, which is where most of the water um, is amassed, and uh, to channel it to other parts um, of the planet. And this, um, people like Robert Markley and K. Maria D. Lane have argued, is, is part of a wider kind of sense that Mars becomes a reflection of Earth's future because Mars in this, on this telling is a very dry planet. It's a dying planet. It's, uh, it's an older planet 
than the Earth, uh, according to the nebular hypothesis. It will have formed before Earth, and because it's smaller, it will have cooled and dried more quickly. And so one of the kind of obvious projections that people like Lowell seem to be making, it, it seems to us now quite obvious when we look at this as cultural historians, is he sees these brilliant technological Martians basically overcoming an ecological disaster. And so they're kind of these brilliant capitalist industrialists who build this amazing engineering works. Um, and that's what you see uh, on, on the planet. And here I can plug another great book, which is Robert Markley's book, Dying Planet, which is uh, an, along with, with Camaria Dean Lane's work, the other kind of foundational work for my own study, because that really looks at this ecological uh, question. So in the interest of full disclosure, I worked for Knoll once for a summer at the Whipple Museum, where I helped put together an online exhibition on the collection's calculators. While there are some truly exceptional, one-of-a-kind objects in the museum's collection, like, say, a fragment of Charles Babbage's Difference Engine No. 1, some of the best artifacts are popular materials and everyday devices designed to be useful or inspire awe. One kind of object that Nall discusses are cigarette cards that were used to weigh in on the Mars controversy, and they do a good job encapsulating the book's argument that the history of astronomy cannot be explained by isolating expert debates from the public sphere. Yeah, so, so materials like the cigarette cards were really my start point, because obviously I was very fortunate to be drawing on the collection of the Whipple Museum of the History of Science, where I work, and those cigarette cards are part of the collection. And those actually date from the 1920s. And so the reason that they're kind of illustrated in the conclusion is that they are used to demonstrate the kind of long tail to um, questions and debates about life on Mars. This is not something that just kind of disappears in a cloud of smoke um, as soon as astronomers come to their senses. And so material like the cigarette cards are an important reminder, as is, as is the globe painted by Ingeborg Brunn on the cover of the book, that public interest and popular engagement with the question of life on Mars is absolutely central to this entire story. So really, if I had to encapsulate the, the kind of fundamental argument and premise of the book, it is simply this, that if we want to understand debates about life on Mars and more broadly questions about um, the what I called the, or what Agnes Mary Clark called the new astronomy, um, what we would now generally call astrophysics and planetary science, um, then we can't understand this by thinking about two separate realms. On the one hand, the astronomical realm, where all of these professionals hang around in, in obscure observatories and make observations. And then on the other hand, the, the public realm, the popular realm, where that information somehow just kind of trickles down and diffuses. And so obviously this is drawing on the kind of things that, that you and me, we all teach our students as soon as they come into our departments now, um, which is that this kind of diffusionist model uh, of science um, is, is just not tenable. There is not a, a, it is very rarely the case that you have knowledge just simply trickling down from these ivory towers and diffusing out from, from metropolitan centers. Instead, what the book tries to argue and the basis for the, the whole kind of premise of the book is to try and show through case studies the way in which um, what I characterize very generally as mass media are implicated within the working practices of astronomy in the period that I study. That there's, there's not only no way of separating out these realms of the, the, the professional and the public, uh, in fact, the, the, the opposite is true. The only way to understand uh, what's going on here is to understand that they are inextricably bound together. Um, and really, at the most kind of general level, what that is, is it's an argument for thinking about astronomers as, uh, as journalists too, as, as, as agents in a popular marketplace at the same time that they're astronomers. And I hope that what I've done is actually proven that to be the case through these kind of quite detailed case studies that I've that I've used in the book. 
The Victorian period is often understood as a golden age of science popularization, but it also bore witness to the development of modern university training and scientific disciplines. The first protagonist in Nall's story, Richard Proctor, unsettles this distinction. Yeah, so Richard Proctor is a, a really a, a, a very wonderful um, example for, for my broader argument because initially in the, in the historiography of, of Victorian astronomy, he didn't really appear at all. Then when he did begin to appear, he emerged initially as your kind of archetypical popularizer because the one thing that's very clear when you start looking at Victorian astronomy is that Richard Proctor wrote books about whatever you look at. And these books, um, you find them everywhere because they were hugely popular. And in fact, um, uh, Stephen Dick has done the legwork, looked into the kind of uh, the, the quantification and has made the, the, the very plausible claim that, that Richard Proctor was the most widely read uh, author on astronomy in the English speaking world between the 1860s and the 1890s. Um, so he's hugely important, but the really important point for, for my story is that if you actually go and look at the work that he's doing without presupposing his kind of position outside some purported professional sphere, in actual fact, he's every bit as much an astronomer as the rest of his peers in the Royal Astronomical Society. And he is simply working in a style that appears to us to be rather kind of popular, rather sensational, one might even say. But in actual fact, if you go back and look non-anachronistically at the nature of the work he's doing, that's not how he was perceived at the time. He was, I mean, Bernard Lightman, who's done wonderful work on Richard Proctor, has has made this point that to um, to, to the common man or woman in the street, Richard Proctor was every bit as significant and important as famous a scientist in Great Britain as Faraday or Darwin or Maxwell. He was a huge, huge deal. Um, but he was also very widely respected as a lot of people believe the preeminent authority on astronomy in the period. And the reason, of course, that he's important for my story off the bat is that he's particularly interested in working in this completely new disciplinary terrain, what we would now call astrophysics or a, a blend of astrophysics and planetary science, which is to say Proctor emerges onto the scene in the 1860s, just at the moment that astronomy is greatly diversifying the toolkit that it has and the range and extension of the discipline more broadly. Traditionally, most astronomers have worked on what we would perhaps call positional astronomy, celestial mechanics, tracking the motion and the position of, uh, of astronomical objects, and then performing mathematical computations such that you can do things like aid navigation with it. Proctor could not care less about that form uh, of astronomy. He spends a great deal of time mocking astronomers who perform all of what he believes to be mostly useless observations in observatories. He's interested in the wonder and the majesty and the power of astronomy to explain the universe to us and kind of expand uh, what he calls the mental and moral culture of society. And so he's fascinated by the new tools of astrophysics, which do things like uh, show that the chemical composition not only of the sun, but of also of planets in the solar system is more or less exactly analogous to the chemical composition of the earth. And he uses what we would kind of now recognize as, as, a, as an obvious kind of form of terrestrial analogy to extrapolate this and make the point that if that's the case, if, for example, water has been detected on Mars, as it had been in 1864 by, by uh, sorry, 1867, by, um, by William Huggins, then one has to question whether planets like Mars were not exactly like Earth in more ways than chemistry, whether they were like them biologically as well. Um, and he has this kind of uh, rather um, 
provocative phrase where he basically says that until it's been proven that no life exists on an object like Mars, we must assume that life does exist there because the evidence that we get from astrophysics is that Mars is pretty much uh, like Earth. And this is controversial, of course. There are astronomers who are very upset with this kind of speculation. And this pitches Proctor into a great big disciplinary fight. So part of what I do in the first chapter of this book is kind of position Proctor as an astronomer in a disciplinary fight um, between effectively three factions, which is the mathematical astronomers, um, people like Airy, the astronomer royal at Greenwich on the one hand, then the second faction, these new younger upstart scientific naturalists who are trying to professionalize the discipline, bring in a new kind of elitism that um, sweeps away the old kind of gentlemen uh, of science and replaces them with young professional salaried scientists. And then Proctor is this third faction, which I characterize by the kind of umbrella term imaginative astronomy. Um, and that's an argument against both of those other factions. Uh, and it's a deeply populist, egalitarian argument. It's basically at its core an argument that astronomy is worthless, is pointless, unless it is not only understood by the public, but is received and um, enjoyed by the public. And so he says that really, unless you're publishing books that the public read and understand and, and that raises their mental and moral culture, then you're just wasting your time. While the scientific enterprise was itself in flux, there was a major transformation underway in journalism, the new journalism, which Nall asserts is important for historians of popular science to account for. One half of my chapter is really focused on who Proctor is, how he works, what his relationship to other astronomers are. Then the other half of my chapter is really about journalism. Um, it's about uh, a moment in transatlantic journalism, which gets called eventually the new journalism. And this new journalism is um, uh, very well known to historians of journalism and almost unknown to historians of science, which is kind of remarkable because the new journalism is politically and socially and culturally transformative uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. And the basis of the new journalism is a kind of heady mix of amazingly successful populism um, uh, of, of attempting to produce uh, journalistic content, particularly newspapers, um, but also books and periodicals that sell not in the thousands or the tens of thousands, but in the hundreds of thousands and eventually in the millions per day. And on the other hand, with this populism is a real, uh, a, a particular form of kind of combative egalitarianism. The, the kind of godfather of the new journalism on the British side uh, of the Atlantic um, is a, a famous editor named W.T. Stead, who founds the Pall Mall Gazette. And he makes that newspaper incredibly successful by establishing a series of anti-establishment campaigns, incredibly controversial campaigns, the most famous of which um, is a campaign to expose child prostitution in London, uh, and not only expose the prevalence of child prostitution in London, but also expose the fact that authorities are either doing nothing about it or are in fact complicit in it. Um, and these are subjects that no newspaper would have ever published. And he publishes them and he publishes details and he sets up uh, what we would kind of uh, consider to be investigative journalism stings. He sends people in and he and Proctor are huge friends and allies. The Palmer Gazette loves Proctor. And so in a certain sense, the, 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 the kind of political um, paradigm which Proctor both draws on and then feeds into is this new form of kind of populist, egalitarian, anti-establishment, anti-elitist campaigning that Stead is kind of very well known as the pioneer of. But Proctor in his own way is doing a similar thing, but with science. He's basically making uh, the claim 
that just as Stead is attacking kind of inveterate power and saying that the power needs to be uh, devolved to the people by providing them with the information they need, Proctor is saying a similar thing with astronomy. He's saying that, that science has been cloistered. It's been kept from the people by the use of abstruse mathematics and complicated language, and that actually what scientists need to do is that they need to, um, in fact, they must produce their work in such a way that the people kind of can grasp it and understand it uh, and learn from it. So that's a long answer to a simple question, but that's really the political paradigm that I place Proctor within. News from Mars is a transatlantic tale. So I asked Nall why Proctor moved to the United States and what happens when he does. Yeah, so um, that's an excellent question. And um, Proctor moves to the United States because really the much of what I've described to you about the new journalism and about this paradigm of um, uh, a very populist approach to public knowledge and the diffusion of public knowledge, these ideas originate uh, in their strongest form in the United States. The new journalism, as it appears in Britain, is heavily indebted to uh, movements that really begin in, particularly in New York, in the 1830s and the 1840s with what we now call the yellow journalism. And so in the history of journalism, there's very much a recognition of this particular transatlantic moment, this idea that there is a new kind of shared cultural interest in works that aren't just cheap and populist, but which are also um, kind of combatively uh, anti-elitist and egalitarian. And Proctor draws on those ideas But he also, through drawing on those ideas, kind of comes to love the United States above and beyond Britain. And one of the main ways that Proctor makes money is he goes on lecture tours, huge lecture tours through hundreds of towns. And he he does this in the United States. He's in the English speaking world. He's he's an international celebrity. He's I mean, it sounds rather pat, but to give you a sense of, of the kind of character we're talking about, he's kind of the Carl Sagan of his day. Um, if you know anything about astronomy and science, um, then you've heard of Proctor. And so he goes on these tours where he goes to literally two, two, 200 plus towns across the United States. And eventually he's doing this so much going back and forth that he actually gets off the boat um, in New York. And there are journalists who just because Proctor is arriving, there are journalists at the at the dock waiting to interview him. And he admits that he's actually going to stay uh, and move to America. Um, uh, This is in the early 1880s. This is very useful for the the broader arc and argument that I'm trying to construct in the book, because the second chapter of the book moves us very much from Great Britain to the United States. One of the things that I have to concede at the end of the first chapter of my book is that while I make this claim that imaginative astronomy is a hugely important paradigm for understanding the nature of astronomical practice in the 1870s, 1880s, one of the obvious reasons that no one has written about imaginative astronomy before me or those that have, uh, it's only been a few people, is because imaginative astronomy obviously does not survive as uh, a paradigm of astronomical practice. Proctor, if he had his way, the astronomer royal on down in Britain and the same in the States, everyone would be practicing astronomy the way he practices it. And that clearly doesn't happen. So it's very easy to miss um, uh, in, in the historical record. So the second chapter is really an attempt to explain why imaginative astronomy struggles and dies. One obvious answer is that Richard Proctor dies unexpectedly and suddenly from yellow fever in 1888. Um, That's one of the mistakes that he makes, is moving to the United States, he moves to Florida, uh, and he catches a tropical disease. So, you know, that is very unfortunate, but the the, the chapter is actually an attempt to, to, to make a broader argument about the trials and tribulations of imaginative astronomy in the face of... Uh, a new paradigm in astronomy, which is absolutely centered not only in the United States, but is centered in the the Western states of the United States. Um, 
And so this moves us from Proctor in his kind of metropolitan set, setting where he's jumping between London and New York and going on lecture tours. Um, the chapter shifts us to the American West and uh, the rise of what Rebecca Solnit um, has, has dubbed the technological West. And this is very relevant for my story because one of the things that Proctor starts to rail against once he's moved to the United States, having moved there thinking, oh, this is wonderful, this is the center of kind of egalitarian populist science, and in many ways it was, there was a new paradigm emerging that was completely antithetical to to that model. And that paradigm is the paradigm of uh, the big observatory, the philanthropically funded and established astronomical observatory. So in the period starting in the 1880s, very, very wealthy robber barons start to endow incredibly lavish and expensive astrophysical observatories. So the ones that we may know about and we've heard of um, are the Lick Observatory, uh, just outside San Francisco, California, the Yerkes Observatory um, uh, near Chicago, um, the Mount Wilson Observatory, um, and importantly for my book, uh, the Boyden Station, um, which is established in, uh, uh, on a mountainside in, in Arequipa in Peru. And this model is antithetical to Proctor because it's uh, a model that instead of being general and generalist and populist and open, is, uh, it's cloistered, it relies on huge amounts of money, um, it pays uh, a very small number of astronomers to spend their time kind of holed up in these observatories. And so Proctor sees this as, as, as a real kind of threat. But the reason it's happening is because astrophysics to advance, um, a number of American observers are amongst the first to really push the point that you need much bigger telescopes. And once you start needing much bigger telescopes, you immediately face the problem, um, what astronomers call the problem of seeing, um, which is in this instance, this is the technical term, which is the, the, the quality of seeing um, is, is how well your telescope is able to resolve celestial objects. And this is hugely impacted by atmospheric interference. And that obviously scales with the size of your telescope. If you build a bigger telescope, you have a bigger problem looking through a murky, uh, unsteady atmosphere. So at the same moment that astronomers start demanding these huge telescopes and planning these huge telescopes, they make the recognition that has long been realized, but not realized, uh, sorry, realized in the sense of, of, of recognized, but not practically realized, which is that if you're going to use a huge telescope, you need to put it on the top of a mountain. Um, in, in, in thinner, clearer, stabler air. And so the Lick, which is really the first permanent mountain observatory, uh, is built on top of a mountain. And so you couldn't really get any less proctor in this paradigm because you're, you're completely hiding yourself away from, uh, from the public. The rise of observatories went hand in hand with other kinds of technological change. And I asked Nal to say a bit more about what's happening with the telegraph and how this changes the public and professional character of astronomy, an unintended consequence of Mars images and the telegraphic imagination colliding was a cultural fascination with extraterrestrial communication. Yeah, in Solnit's conception of the technological West, she makes, and this is in her book, River of Shadows, which is ostensibly a biography of Edward Mybridge, the, the, who's famous for his stop motion photography. Uh, but in actual fact, the book covers much more ground than that. Um, and it's a wonderfully rich evocation of um, the kind of new technological systems that emerge out of this robber baron philanthropy. And the kind of canonical examples are the railroads, the new massive railroads that are put in, these new big observatories, and then with them, these new forms of telecommunication infrastructure. So one of the kind of tropes that emerges precisely in this period is this idea of the annihilation of time and space. 
Uh, and this is a trope that starts to pop up in accounts of these enterprises that people like Moybridge are doing at, at Stanford University, but also the, that are being done with these new big observatories, with these big telescopes that can annihilate space in the same way that the new uh, railroads can annihilate time. And tying all of this together um, is internationally networked telegraphy. This is also the same moment that uh, submarine cable telegraphs are being put in such that for the first time, um, institutions in California are linked near instantaneously, not only to institutions in, say, New York, but also in London, uh, in Paris, and beyond. And so the other kind of key moment that emerges, um, which under, un completely undermines Proctor's much more contemplative philosophical um, approach, Proctor's approach is synthetic, is this moment of near instantaneous news distribution. Because then once the observatory moves to the top of these mountains, you start to have this paradigm of astronomy, not through kind of synthetic uh, theorizing in the Proctorian sense, but rather through rapidly distributed news of observations, which can, of course, be distributed even from the top uh, of a mountain. And so the chapter ends with an argument that this fundamentally changes the way in which uh, astrophysics, planetary science, and Mars are, are conceived of. It's no longer conceived in this Proctorian sense as this kind of um, planet that can be theorized as kind of analogically similar to Earth, but somewhat ambiguous two kind of new paradigms begin to be projected onto Mars, which it seems to me very obviously reflect these new technologies. On the one hand, you have the massive uh, technical industrial network, the canals, which we've already mentioned. And on the other, you start to see interest in Mars becoming dominated by the question of instantaneous signaling. Just at the moment that these observatories are beginning to able to actually distribute observations of Mars as they happen, people start to become fascinated with the prospect and also with potential news of messages being signaled between Earth and Mars. So there are a number of episodes where light flashes are reported from observatories around the world, which are initially reported simply as we think we've seen a light flash on Mars. And this very rapidly gets spun into um, very uh, wide-ranging public debates about whether or not it's possible to communicate with Mars and how one should communicate with Mars. And these are debates that draw in many of the most eminent astronomers of the era. And it's, it's a point I have to keep coming back to in the book to kind of labor my point, which is that this is not a story about kind of rank popularization. This is not merely just kind of off the hook journalists running around and playing fast and loose with the facts. Um, one of the first people who writes extensively about how one would communicate with Mars is Francis Galton, one of the most famous uh, British scientists of the era uh, Charles Darwin's half-cousin, the, um, uh, the originator of eugenics, um, hugely influential scientist across a range of disciplines. And you have people like J. Norman Lockyer, the founder of Nature, um, entering the fray on the other side and saying that um, reports of communicating with Mars are, um, have gone too far and that um, uh, people need to calm down. Uh, and it becomes this extended um, argument and debate. And, and really, this is kind of, um, this is all setting the groundwork for my third chapter, because my third chapter is, is a, a kind of micro study of one such episode in, in, in this debate. And so the second chapter, in a, in a way, kind of is establishing the ground rules and making this case that astronomers are actively involved, and, and making this more general point that um, uh, the nature of new technologies, particularly communications technologies, particularly journalistic technologies, 
are completely and utterly entangled with how astronomers are working at this point. They are, they are, they're not just connecting their observatories to, to telegraph networks, but they're also implicating themselves in, in wider debates about the nature of long-distance um, uh, communication and signaling as it relates to Mars, but also as it relates to how one distributes information about astronomy. Because underlying uh, a lot of the debates and arguments um, at this point, both before Proctor dies and after Proctor dies, is this underlying question of what are the appropriate ways for astronomers to disseminate new information, new claims, new observations. Because, of course, astronomers have long, certain astronomers, particularly conservative astronomers, have long been upset with the kind of way that people like Proctor, Proctor in particular, um, made kind of rather bold uh, claims that were more or less conjectural. And once you get into this paradigm of, um, uh, of news, mass media news distribution and telegraphic news distribution, the nature and the potential for those kind of conjectural claims to, to spread and to kind of dominate the narrative becomes a key problematic. And that's the, that's the problematic that kind of frames the, the third chapter of the book. The advent of print media led to what Nall terms event astronomy, distinct in its public-facing character and connection to the news cycle. I asked Nall to explain for our listeners what is at stake in the rise of event astronomy and how it fits into the arc of the book. Yeah, so event astronomy is really just a way of capturing the idea that um, certain certain episodes within astronomy start to feed into a culture of news that we're most familiar with as historians of science in relation to exploration, which is this idea that um, is, is well covered in the history of exploration, that, that newspapers start to not only actively cover forms of scientific exploration and expeditions, most notably to the polar regions, but they actively support them. Uh, many of the expeditions to the polar regions, particularly that are launched from the United States, are actually funded in part or entirely by newspapers so that they can then get exclusive coverage. And the idea of event astronomy is to make the point that this becomes the case with astronomy too. So I open chapter three, not by talking about Mars, but actually by looking in, at, at an eclipse expedition to um, uh, an eclipse that's observable in Northern California. And um, a newspaper, um, one of the great new journalistic papers of the era, the, the New York Herald, um, not only send, well, they actually don't send a reporter with William Pickering from Harvard Observatory to make the observations. Pickering leads a team. Instead, what they do is they arrange for a direct telegraph signal from William Pickering's observing site in Willows, Cal Northern California, to the New York Herald office so that he can report from the eclipse in real time as it's happening. And then the New York Herald print these up as telegraphic transcripts with timestamps. And of course, the Herald is publishing several times a day. So in actual fact, they're able to get their first reports out um, almost as soon as the eclipse happens. And this becomes very important for the Mars story because William Pickering then the next job William Pickering kind of has after his brother, has, who's, his brother Edward Pickering is, is director of Harvard Observatory. The next job Edward assigns to William is he sends him down to Arequipa in Peru to establish um, Harvard's new mountaintop observatory, um, which is funded by the, the, the philanthropist Uriah Boyden. Um, Uriah Boyden's will stipulates that he's left, I think it's some astronomical sum, like $300,000 to erect an observatory on the top of a mountain so that it is in um, an ideal uh, position for observing. And they scout locations all over the place. And Edward Pickering has the smart idea that if they build um, the observatory in, in Arequipa in Peru, they'll not only be on the top of a mountain in beautiful, clean air, but they'll also be able to look at um, uh, southern uh, the southern skies, the southern night skies, and observe regions that um, places like the Lick can't. So the New York Herald immediately start 
reporting on this expedition as well, because the Herald have already established this relationship with William Pickering. He's on first name terms. We know from the archives, if you look at the archives, there are these wonderful letters between him and journalists at the Herald. And they they write as friends. Um, They're on first name terms. um, uh, And so when William Pickering goes down to Arequipa, the Herald covers this and reports reports the journey and the expedition. Um, And this is obviously, we should back up here and and make the point that this is all happening because the public want to read about what I've dubbed here event astronomy. They are interested in new goings on in astronomy and the new reports are coming out of astronomical observatories. And obviously the just about the ultimate, definitive, most important, most popularly uh, kind of interesting event are, that happens in astronomy are the periodic um, approaches of Mars to Earth. As I mentioned, um, kind of playing into this idea of event astronomy is also the, the kind of periodicity of Mars. Mars fits into the new cycle very well because Mars spends most of its time way too far away from Earth to be observable, um, uh, for its surface to be observable. I mean, you can, you can still see it, but you can't look at it through a telescope in any meaningful sense. But once every couple of years, um, uh, it swings into what's called opposition, where the Sun, the Earth, and Mars line up, and therefore Mars is, is, is closer, much closer to Earth than it normally typically is. And so every couple of years, there is an event. Uh, and that event is, will new observations be made on Mars? And obviously, the, the, the kind of key question here is, um, can this issue of canals be resolved? Can, can we figure out, okay, are there intelligent creatures on Mars? Is it a living planet? If it is a living planet, what kind of life is on there? Is it just vegetation? Is it just lichen and algae? Or are, as some people are claiming, they're not only intelligent beings, but beings more intelligent than any being on Earth? Because that's kind of one of the foundational ideas of, of, of a possible living Mars is that because it's older than Earth, the Darwinian paradigm would suggest that with more time, life will have evolved to a higher form uh, than, than humans are on, on Earth. So the... The close approach that um, Chapter 3 focuses on is it happens in 1892, and this is important because it's the best viewing conditions for Mars since 1877, which is when Schiaparelli first observes the, the Canali. So as far as the press is concerned, 1892 is the moment at which we should get all the answers we need uh, about Mars and about life on Mars. Um, since 1877, these new big observatories have been built. And in particular, William Pickering has gone out to this brand new observatory in, uh, in Arequipa in Peru. He's on the top of a mountain and he's going to report what he sees on Mars. And the reason this is such a wonderful archival story for me is that, um, we have a record kind of a blow by blow account of the, the kind of sensation that uh, emerges from this, because Edward Pickering has sent his brother out to mostly take um, spectro, astrospectroscopic photographs, um, to take photographs of spectrum and to ship the plates back to Harvard, where they can be analyzed by, by teams of computers. And William Pickering instead turns up and he's like, no, actually, I'm just going to look at Mars because Mars is way more interesting. But crucially, just before he turns up, the New York Herald have established exclusive rights for the distribution of news from South America through James Scrimps's um, telegraph company, which has the one cable that stretches from, from Texas down to the north uh, uh, of the South American continent, and then through and down the South American continent, including um, uh, through Lima. And so William Pickering is able to telegraph directly to the New York Herald from Arequipa. And so at the same moment that his brother is sending him letters by mail that take about two months to get there, Pickering is able to send his observations of Mars straight to the New York Herald. And so that's what he does. 
and it causes a complete sensation. He reports a sweeping range of new observations of Mars. He says he sees all of these extraordinary changes. He says he sees huge seas forming and lakes moving and describes an incredibly dynamic uh, planet. And Edward Pickering is tearing his hair out, um, meanwhile, and in fact, um, in the middle of this controversy, sends his brother a letter recalling him, saying that you're effectively sacked. But of course, (laughs) that doesn't arrive for several months, by which point Pickering has been sending repeated uh, telegraphs to to the Herald. Um, And what's particularly striking about this episode, and it doesn't just prove kind of the implication of these new media technologies in practice, but the, the, the core of the argument for chapter three is that I really think that it's from this particular form of telegraphic exchange that the press begin to focus completely and utterly on this question of canals. And, and that's because one obvious consequence of this form of, of event astronomy is that suddenly astronomy is happening at a speed and through a technology that completely eliminates the possibility of um, using or distributing images. Um, Because Pickering has to send in messages of about 100, 150 words to the New York Herald what he's seeing. And then the Herald write them up. They don't, in this case, publish them verbatim they take the kind of telegraphies, that kind of clipped vernacular, and they turn it into these exciting accounts. And without images, the press immediately latch on and focus on this issue of whether or not canals are seen. And in part, this becomes a rivalry between the Lick Observatory, uh, where the director, Edward Holden, has previously been very critical of the idea of canals. But once William Pickering reports canals from Arequipa, Very quickly, um, Edward Holden then sends a telegraph to the Herald's great rival, the Associated Press, and says, oh, we've seen canals at the Lick as well. And it gets the ball rolling on a whole summer's worth, across the summer, summer in the Northern Hemisphere, across August, um, September in in, um, 1892, of just this explosion of news coverage about canals uh, on Mars. I mean, if you if you if you do the lazy thing we historians now do, which is you sit down in the Library of Congress on um, one of these newspaper databases and you put in Mars plus canals um, and hit return for 1892, you just get more hits than you know what how to deal with. Um, And so. In a way that um, is probably more nuanced in the chapter in a way that it's hard to characterize here, I basically make the case that that this particular kind of news distribution shapes the way in which Mars is talked about. And therefore, effectively, it shapes the way that Mars is known in the period, because you can only talk about it at this point. Images are not circulating. Um, William Pickering publishes sketches of Mars uh, I think about six months after the opposition. And obviously at that point, the horse is completely bolted. And, and, and the irony here is that William Pickering didn't think that there were actually really canals on Mars. And if there were, he was very skeptical of their nature as, as, as bodies of water. But the narrative at that point had already kind of, um, uh, had already kind of bounded on uh, beyond him. The final chapter of the book explores an Encyclopedia Britannica entry rather than Percival Lowell, the figure who fueled fascination with the idea of canals on Mars, well covered in the historical record. Instead of focusing more attention on this fascinating character, Nall shows how an encyclopedia could serve as a way to control the narrative about astronomy by following the editorial story of Simon Newcomb. The encyclopedia, too, was a mass genre, but one that partook less of the need to drive public fascination through up-to-the-minute reporting. Yeah, so the Encyclopedia Britannica story was something that I kind of stumbled upon just because I noticed that the 11th edition Britannica, which was published between 1910 and 1911, had an article on Mars that was published, that was written by Simon Newcomb, who if you look up Newcomb, you discover one of the many things Newcomb did was he was a very strong critic of the canals. 
and the idea of canals and the idea of life on Mars, in fact. He was very anti-speculation. He was a very fierce critic of Proctor, and then he was a very fierce critic of Percival Lowell. So when it came to coming to the kind of the, the end of my story, which is the Lowell era, which is normally the focus of everyone's story. But actually, if you look chronologically, the Lowell era is at the end. Lowell doesn't build his observatory until 1894. So we're, we're, we're well into the debates at, at this point. The 1892 episode has already happened. And I didn't want to write another thing about Lowell. There's a lot out there about Lowell, and he's been very well covered. There's a very good um, uh, biography of him by Strauss. Um, and so actually what I thought would be more interesting would be to look at the opponents of Lowell and how did people, uh, how did astronomers maneuver and use different genres of mass media to oppose Lowell? And what I discovered that one of the, the, the key ways that they did this was, was through encyclopedias. Um, as many of your listeners will know, the Encyclopedia Britannica was kind of the definitive reference work of this era. The ninth edition, um, which had been compiled in the 1870s and 1880s, had been called the Scholars Edition, and it had been composed by, in the science articles, had been composed by many of the era's kind of um, uh, authorities in their subjects. And so the next edition, the 11th, the 10th edition was really just a reissue, an, an updated reissue of the ninth. For the 11th, um, Simon Newcomb kind of takes hold of all of the astronomy content. And this is classic Newcomb, because if you look, his archive is, is vast and, and in the Library of Congress. And it's very um, indicative of a politically engaged and publicly engaged intellectual of his era. He spends an awful lot of time writing pieces, writing letters, writing reviews as a way of kind of uh, attacking and criticizing what he sees as the kind of more populist and less credible uh, facets of, um, the sci- of the scientific kind of world at, at that moment. And so getting hold of all of the astronomy content and being the editor for all the astronomy content for the Encyclopedia Britannica is a really important way for Newcomb to to gain disciplinary control over this hugely important reference work that is that is going to sell hundreds of thousands of copies. And so fortunately for me, in Newcomb's archive at the Library of Congress, there is the complete editorial correspondence of Newcomb for this whole enterprise. And so the chapter is really a blow-by-blow account of how he wrote that, the the article as it as it came to appear in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And so On a general level, the argument is simply that one way of responding to the immediacy and the huge populism of newspapers, of of platforms like the New York Herald, was to use mass media that was just as successful and popular, but was not as immediate, but instead was um, uh, more authoritative and um, as... as, um, Percival Lowell describes it in an angry letter to Newcomb. Um, he says, as, as the Britannica will be made to last, do you not think that you should at least countenance my views about the canals? And this is at a point when Newcomb has shared a draft with Lowell, um, which basically is, has, just goes away and, and criticizes Lowell and his theories in the canals. So that's the kind of general argument. And, and then as a kind of microhistorical account, it's really an argument for how that um, attempt kind of falls apart. If you look at the final piece, it's really a weird piece because it isn't just a, an account of Mars that, that um, is critical of the canals. For example, it includes two illustrations that come from the Lowell Observatory and show the canals, two maps of Mars that absolutely show the canals. And so there's also a kind of richer account in the chapter of how Newcomb's project dismantles and unravels around him, in part because Lowell's authority is such that the editors at the Britannica are not willing to countenance completely dismissing Lowell. To wrap up, I ask now, a curator, what he is working on now. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, um, the, the main thing I'm working on at the moment is, is 
changing tack somewhat, but is is very germane to my day job, obviously, as a curator in a museum, um, along with a colleague here in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science uh, in Cambridge, um, Boris Jardine. Um, Boris and I, we are co-editing a, a primary source volume on material culture of science and medicine in, in the Victorian world. So it's, it's a volume where we're selecting texts that kind of speak to um, many facets of, of material culture, um, of instruments, of models, of tools used in science and medicine in, in the 19th century. Um, and so that's kind of, that's taking up most of my time at the moment. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network.